Welcome back to the Der Show. Um, we all read the headline. It was really blasted all over that uh, President Biden was making real news by pardoning every single federal prisoner, every single federal defendant who was convicted of possessing small amounts of marijuana. Like many, I applauded that. I don't think marijuana use should have ever been a criminal and shouldn't be criminal. For me, it's like, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol. Um, if you do it to excess, that's one thing. But if you just uh, use marijuana, I've never used it in my life. I, mean, I, I, know, I know it smells because uh, when I walk down the beach, the, the, the pungent odor of marijuana surrounds me and I wish it didn't. People shouldn't smoke in your face. But uh, I thoroughly applauded it and I thought it would really maybe make a difference. And then I read the Wall Street Journal, and they have an interesting statistic on the number of people, prisoners, who were actually affected by the pardon. So here's the trivial pursuit question. Uh, how many federal prisoners do you think ended up being released from prison based on President Biden's pardoning of all federal defendants? Um, that were convicted of marijuana use in, in, in small amounts. Remember that the vast majority of criminal cases, uh, over 80%, are prosecuted by the state, not the federal government, even though the feds are increasing their amount of prosecution, certainly from the beginning of our republic, where it was almost none, uh, to qu quite a bit. But, um, but let's stick with the federal. Um, Take a guess. Do you think like a thousand uh, people who were convicted and suffering from unjust prison terms were released? Five hundred, a hundred, ten, one? You'd be wrong. The number is zero. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, quote, even Mr. Biden had to concede that no one, no one is in federal prison for simple marijuana possession. Now, the Wall Street Journal does not go on to say, and it should have said in the article, that the pardon goes beyond people who are in prison. People who have a criminal record based on marijuana use who are not in prison have now been pardoned. And so their conviction has been wiped out. And if they were felons, they can vote. So it did have uh, an impact, but it didn't have an impact on the prison population. And the reason it didn't have an impact on the prison population, and almost nothing will have an impact on the prison population without endangering uh, many Americans is that the vast, vast majority of people in federal prison and in state prison, but in federal prison, are there for committing violent crimes. Violent crimes are the major reason people are in prison. Um, and uh, let's see, 58% of people in prison by states have been sentenced for violent offenses, 15 for property offenses, 14 for drug offenses, and only 4% for drug uh, possession. Uh, put another way, drug offenders are less than a quarter of the violent offenders. And, you know, one cannot escape the tragic racial element of this large number of, of prison inmates. I'll give you again from the uh, Wall Street Journal. I'm not convinced these data are completely correct, but uh, I'm sure editors went through it. Um, uh, it says in the Wall Street Journal, uh, 
nor would releasing drug offenders do much of anything to address the racial imbalance among inmates, which results primarily from the fact that blacks, this is according to the Wall Street Journal, are about 13% of the U.S. population and yet are responsible for almost two-thirds of the nation's violent crimes. That statistic has to take into account the fact that uh, African-Americans are arrested more frequently, all things being equal. Uh, they are more frequently sentenced to uh, prison, more frequently sentenced to long prison terms. So the statistics are, are somewhat skewed, but not skewed to the point of eliminating the reality that 13% of the U.S. population uh, are responsible for almost two-thirds of the nation's violent crimes, even if it's only half or even if it's only a quarter. That is uh, disproportionate. Now, there are many reasons for that, many causes, poverty, uh, uh, other factors, discrimination, um, uh, but, but it's still tragically a fact that violent crimes are disproportionately committed by certain groups. Now, the Wall Street Journal also doesn't mention that the vast majority of victims of violent crimes are also African-Americans because, you know, as um, a politician once said, all politics is local. Um, all crime is local, not all, but almost all. Uh, the vast majority of violent crimes are committed against people who are either known to the criminal or live in neighborhoods adjoining where the criminal lives. It's, it's rare. It happens, of course, that people from one community or one state uh, uh, travel and, 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 and create uh, victims of people who live far away. That's, that's possible. But for the vast majority of cases, the victims and the perpetrators um, come from the same areas and uh, uh, tend to be racially similar. So, so how does one deal with this problem? Uh, there, there are too many people in prison, but there's no free lunch. Um, by, by simply uh, freeing the nonviolent, what happens? Very, very few drug users are, are freed because there are very few drug users in prison. And if you say, let's, let's, let's free other nonviolent criminals, who are you freeing? You're freeing largely white collar, white defendants, white prisoners. The only way you get to free substantial numbers of African-American prisoners is if you also begin to free people who have been convicted of violent crimes. That's not particularly popular today. We saw what happened to the uh, district attorney of San Francisco, somebody I've known for a long time. He was booted out of office. Um, we're now seeing uh, complaints about the district attorney of of New York and, and other parts of the country. Uh, it used to be that DAs and attorneys general were the best candidates for higher office. Now, not so much because either you're uh, for releasing uh, people from prison, which means often violent criminals, or you're not, which means maintaining the uh, racial imbalance that we have today in imprisonment. So it's, it's a real, it's a real dilemma. And although, again, you know, I supported Joe Biden, probably will vote for him again if he runs uh, for office. Uh, many of my viewers and listeners disagree with me, but that's, that's my position. I don't think he accomplished very much um, by, by pardoning drug users. I'm glad he did it. He should have done it. And he should have done it quietly without fanfare. 
And he should have made it clear that this is not having an impact on um, prison populations, which are too big. Now, you know, Americans have one of the highest percentages of uh, prisoners, not nearly as high as Iran or China or, you know, the really bad guy countries in the world or Russia, um, but uh, higher than other Western democracies. Um, but that's partly because there's much, much more violent crime in America. And, and, and here I'm going to run into, you know, uh, my uh, colleagues and associates uh, who um, believe that the Second Amendment uh, is, is absolute and that, you know, guns don't kill, people kill. No, guns kill. It's people with guns who kill. And uh, there's no way, and I challenge any of my listeners, write me about that. There's no way of in any way describing or accepting the fact that we have the highest rate of violent crime, the highest rate of violent gun crime of any country, any Western democracy, and maybe of any country in the world today. And we also have the highest rate of gun ownership. It's no coincidence. Uh, the very, very high rate of gun ownership substantially contributes to the very, very high rate of, of gun crimes. That doesn't mean we can solve it by by eliminating the Second Amendment, which we shouldn't do. It's in the Constitution. We shouldn't do it by amendment or by any other way. But let's assume we can figure out a way of allowing the government to take back uh, guns from people who didn't have um, uh, proper procedures, et cetera, et cetera. Um, people aren't giving back their guns. I mean, guns are here to stay. Um, and um, we're not going to solve the gun problem and the crime problem simply by law. Now, some countries have been quite creative. Um, they have bought back the guns. What they've done is offered very considerable rewards for a gun that's worth $100. They've offered $500 or $1,000. Look, lives are worth more than $500 or $1,000. And people have turned in guns as the result of that. But again, are the criminals going to turn in their guns? Um, who's going to turn in their guns? Um, people who need the money, obviously. But uh, it's not going to solve the problem. We may be beyond the solution to the problem. It may be that guns are here to stay and violent crime is, is here to stay. Um, there's no obvious and apparent solution. I'm writing a new book on that. It's probably a year off called The Preventive State. Um, how we are moving much more toward prevention in so many areas of life, and yet we don't have the jurisprudence that cabins uh, prevention uh, because it can be overused by the government, obviously. But to the extent we could prevent crime, violent crime, that would be a, a great thing. But, you know, we are notoriously bad at predicting, as Yogi Berra said, predictions are hard, especially about the future. Uh, and so we've never been successful in being able to sort out which people are going to be committing uh, violent uh, crimes. Maybe we can do it based on recidivism, and that's part of sentencing, and that's part of the reason that our jails are so full, because they're filled with recidivists. They're filled with people who have committed not one act of violence, but multiple acts of violence, and not very many people want to see a person who has you know, committed two murders or 15 assaults or three rapes um, freed so easily. Yeah, there's rehabilitation. I believe in it. Um, but I think the burden of proof is on 
the person seeking to show that they've been really rehabilitated. It's very easy to feign rehabilitation and to, um, you know, uh, uh, talk the talk. But um, to the extent that, that people, if they were released from prison for violent crimes, would recommit uh, crimes of violence, then we're not going to see politicians support that. Um, so write to me. Tell me what you think the answer to the, the crime uh, problem is. Right now, Democrats are blaming Republicans. Republicans are blaming Democrats. The blame game is not going to help Americans who are victims of violent crime. I live in New York now, and we're seeing a tremendous increase in, in crimes uh, on the subways, crimes in the street. And it just breaks my heart when I see a 13 or 14-year-old African-American kid who's doing well in school and really is part of the American dream and then shot and killed in cold blood because they're sitting on a stoop and uh, they came between two gangs or just random shootings. Um, those are our victims. The victims are are largely uh, violent crimes, largely innocent uh, black people. Some are not innocent. Some are gang members, the Crips and the Bloods and all of that. And uh, but, but what we're seeing in Chicago, what we're seeing in St. Louis, what we're seeing in New Orleans, what we're seeing in New York, what we're seeing in so many other parts of, of the country is uh, it's a pandemic of violence. And um, my friend Steven Pinker, great, great social scientist, has written a book called The Better Angels, in which he proves very conclusively that we have less violence now than we've had in the past when talking about the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, even 20th century. We have less violence, but we still have far too much. And again, it tends to be focused on a particular community. So, you know, yeah, we have a serious racial problem in America that we have to um, confront. And But we can't confront it with simple-minded solutions by just saying empty out the prisons. Um, we have to get to the source of the problems. And uh, that begins at, uh, at, at birth. That begins at the kindergarten level. That begins certainly at the elementary school. Uh, it's too late by the time you get into college and, and you have to have debates, as the Supreme Court will soon have a debate, about whether race can be taken into account in college admissions. The, the issues come, come earlier and the issues are profound and deep and uh, uh, they can't be ignored and they can't be just glided over by saying, I'm going to pardon uh, nobody uh, or I'm not going to let anybody out of prison, but I'm going to pardon all drug offenders. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. Uh, that it took the Wall Street Journal to teach me. I'm a professor of criminal law. I'm a real expert in crime. Um, and I didn't know until I read it in the Wall Street Journal that the uh, pardon uh, by, by President Biden released not a single federal prisoner. I probably should have known that. I probably should have realized if I thought about it that you know, the idea that people are today being routinely prosecuted for possessing small amounts of marijuana did not seem consistent. I remember my friend Frank Burns. He was a great cop in Harvard Square in New York. Uh, wonderful, wonderful policeman who died as a result of being shot by a, a, a criminal um, uh, because he withheld his fire because she was holding a hostage. But uh, he used to be the, the cop around Harvard Square. And when he caught a college student, 
um, uh, with a small amount of marijuana, um, he always had a way of dealing with. He would take the student and he would make the student throw the marijuana down a sewer opening. And then uh, late at night, three in the morning, you'd see kids kind of fishing around, trying to dig up the marijuana, but it, it hardly ever worked. Uh, but, but in that case, the punishment truly fit the crime. Um, obviously, nobody should go to prison for smoking marijuana or, or drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes. Um, but that's not the problem. The problem is a much more serious one. What do we do with people who kill, people who rape, people who rob at gunpoint, people who assault, uh, people who endanger the lives of innocent civilians of whatever a race or background? And that's a problem that President Biden uh, hasn't addressed. I don't believe the Democrats have satisfactorily addressed it. I don't believe the Republicans have satisfactorily addressed it. And I'm interested in what your opinions are on how to confront this problem of increasing crime. So let's turn to some of the letters. All right, I'm being sick and dead tired of hearing everyone bitching about everyone else being anti-Semitic. It makes me anti-Semitic. Well, if the shoe fits. Um, then I guess I'm also guilty. Uh, and then some curse words. Can you all stop virtue signaling and bowing the knee to the Jewish people God will sort everything out in the end. Now, did you ever need proof that there is a growing amount of anti-Semitism? I mean, this is a classic anti-Semitic uh, uh, letter. Uh, there is growing anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitic crimes uh, ha have been increasing. Uh, they are now more than crimes committed against uh, other, other people. And even if there was a small amount of anti-Semitism, a small amount is, is too much. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because... Very, very few people pass my test. The test I set out the other day is you're a Republican. You're a person of principle. If a person like Mastriano were running on the Democratic side, you'd be the first to condemn him for anti-Semitism, for bigotry. But you're a Republican. And you don't want to see the governorship of uh, Pennsylvania turned over to some damn Democrat, even though he may be more qualified. You don't want that. Are you prepared to do what I do all the time and say, I'm putting principle above partisan politics. As I said, I will not vote for Bernie Sanders, even if that means the Senate or the presidency going to the opposite party. I will not do that. I have principles. And I challenged many of you to show you have principles uh, by voting against and coming out against uh, this bigot in Pennsylvania. Instead, I got letter after letter defending him defending him, saying what he's nothing wrong with it. He said he's a Christian. No, he didn't say he was a Christian. He said he believes in Christian power and doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. He said that yeshivas, Jewish day schools, are bad things and, 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 and we shouldn't have them. He signed a contract and gave $5,000 to a group of people who glorify anti-Semitism and say, we will not allow the 2% to step on us anymore. It's overt anti-Semitism. So, you know, I have to tell you, viewers and listeners, many of you Republicans flunked the test. You are not people of principle. You're partisans. And when principle and partisanship come out the same way, oh, you're fine. You're great. But when principles and partisanship depart, don't count on you Republicans sticking to principles. Uh, you're going to stick to partisanship for the most part. I don't think I got a single letter from a Republican who was prepared to denounce 
this governor candidate. Um, I don't think you'd get very many letters from a Democrat if the shoe were on the other foot. We don't get very many Democrats condemning Ilan Omer. You get some. Um, but um, if her election, if she were running for the Senate, and if the, um, if the control of the Senate uh, depended on her winning, I guarantee you most Democrats would, in fact, come out and support her. Um, and, and they would say principles be damned. So, um, you know, a plague on both your houses, uh, a, a little bit more principle would make us, I think, a better country. And it's not virtue signaling. It's really designed to make us a more principled country. And I think we're moving in the wrong direction. OK, so Trump's views on the election is part of your reason for not voting for him. You don't even know the truth of the election. Yeah, you know, I do know the truth of the election. You seem to be cocksure that the election was without fraud. No, the election had plenty of fraud, but not enough to determine um, and change the outcome of the election. There's a big difference. There's never been an election in history that didn't have some fraud and some miscounting and, and some problems. But there is absolutely no evidence that uh, there was enough of that to uh, affect the outcome. Remember, I came out against the Pennsylvania vote. I thought the Pennsylvania vote was unconstitutional because it allowed people to vote after the legislature said you couldn't vote anymore, the governor and the courts um, said, no, you could. And that's unconstitutional. And if there were enough votes there to change the outcome of the Pennsylvania electoral um, vote, um, I would be in favor of that. But there aren't. And so the vote would have been exactly the same. No harm, no foul. Okay. Students should not, this is about Berkeley, students should not be forced to choose between identifying as either pro-Palestine and thereby anti-Israel or pro-Israel and thereby anti-Palestine. Students can advocate for Palestine and criticize Israeli policies without denying Israel the right to exist or attacking the identity of other students. The Jewish Students Association of Berkeley Law wrote in a rebuke to that policy. They're 100% right. I am critical of some Israeli policies, just as I'm critical of some American policies. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real patriot. I love America. I would you know, do anything to support America, but I'm critical of some policies, no matter who the president is. I'm critical of some of Trump's policies, some of Obama's policies, some of Clinton's policies, and some of Biden's policies. But uh, only with Israel, if you disagree with their policies, uh, too many people on the hard left say they don't have a right to exist. That's just plain ordinary uh, bigotry. So here's one that relates to that. Jews who vote Democratic <laughs> are anti-Semitic. Okay, so I'm an anti-Semite. 70% of Jews in America who vote Democratic are anti-Semites. Maybe you have to look at yourself in the mirror. Um, Jews don't vote singular issues. Um, we vote on a woman's right to choose abortion. Most of us favor that, at least in the early stages of abortion. We vote on a gay person's right to marry. The vast majority of Jews uh, support that right, even though the Torah uh, prohibits male-on-male uh, -male gay marriage. Uh, we put civil liberties uh, before uh, biblical uh, commands, many of us at least. Um, um, Biden is not an anti-Semite at all. Look who his first major appointments were. He appointed uh, as his chief of staff, a Jewish guy named Klein. He appointed as the most important cabinet members, the first two most important cabinet members, people of the Jewish faith, Anthony Blinken and the uh, secretary of the, uh, of the treasury. 
um, Biden has a, a Jewish, um, um, I think it's a son-in-law, maybe it's a daughter-in-law, I can't remember which, but Jewish in-laws, I met them um, at a, um, at a, 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 Sukkot, a Sukkot party. We're now on the holiday of Sukkot, where Jews build little huts to commemorate the exodus from Egypt. And when he was vice president, he had a, a holiday party in his sukkah. And uh, not only did I go there, I actually read the bracha, the blessing, uh, here we thank you, God, for allowing us to sit and enjoy a meal in the sukkah. So it's, uh, no, Biden's not an anti-Semite. There are anti-Semites in the Democratic Party. There are anti-Semites in the Republican Party. But in America, as George Washington reminded us when he wrote that letter to the uh, Jewish community of uh, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, we are equal citizens. Uh, all we have to do is be good Americans and Jews have been good Americans, and most of them vote Democrat. That may be changing. There may be some who will change over. The more orthodox you are, the more likely you are to vote Republican. But, uh, you know, the more orthodox you are, the more likely you are to be somewhat conservative. That's probably true of Christians as, as well. If you belong to a more liberal Protestant denomination, you're more likely to vote Democrat. And if you belong to a more evangelical or conservative you're more likely to vote Republican. Jimmy Carter was an exception. He was an evangelical Christian who obviously was a Democrat, and there are millions of those as well. So uh, you can't make general statements that uh, people who vote for either party are anti-Semitic. They're not. People who vote for Ilan Omer, you might ask that question. I have another question I want to ask you. This is just a question. I'm just going to throw it out there as, as an idea question. So there are nine clubs at Berkeley that have banned all Zionist speakers and only Zionist speakers. If you're a Russian and you want to make a speech on how important it is to kill Ukrainians, you can speak at the Berkeley Women's Association. If you're uh, uh, David Duke and you want to talk about uh, racial uh, inferiority of blacks, you can talk about at the Black Student Association. There's no rule about that. The only rule is if you're a Zionist, you can't talk about anything. You can't talk about tax policy. If you're a Zionist, you're totally excluded. So here's my question to you. What would you think if some organization made public the names of the officers of these organizations or even their members, the ones who didn't quit, some quit over this, but most didn't, and circulated those names to uh, law firms and to judges saying, you ought to know before you pick somebody to be a lawyer that he or she belongs to a club like the Ku Klux Klan. If they belong to the Klan, obviously, law firms would like to know about it. But this, these are left-wing Ku Klux Klans. They discriminate against Zionists, which in their case means mostly Jews, because 90% of Jews support Israel in the sense of Israel's right to exist. Now, there are all kinds of civil liberties implications, obviously. Do we really want blacklists? Do we... Do people have the right anonymously to vote for bigotry? Um, but I would ask the question on the shoe on the other foot. If a Ku Klux Klan group started at Berkeley, first of all, Berkeley would never allow it to start. So let's understand that. But let's assume it started at Berkeley. And let's assume it said no, no black people will be allowed to speak or, or anybody who supports Black Lives Matters will not be allowed to speak. Would you be opposed to the student newspaper disclosing the names of the 15 people who belong to the Berkeley Ku Klux Klan 
would you be opposed to them naming the president and the vice president and the treasurer uh, and or, or or naming all those who voted for the ban? And if you're not opposed to that, why are you opposed to naming the names of students who belong to the women's group, the gay group, the South Asian group, and the six other groups that voted for this bigoted uh, ban on on Zionists and on any subject, no matter what. So uh, I'm, I'm interested. Write me about that and tell me what you think. Um, I'm of two minds. I haven't made up my mind on that. I understand the arguments on both sides. So maybe you can help me formulate my opinion. I'll see you next week.